fall, but today it's, it's not. Uh, but one of the things that I actually forgot to do, uh, that I meant to do over the summer, was go see the Wolverine movie. Any, any of you guys know what that movie is? You know, the, it's X-Men. Uh, you know, he's the guy who gets the, the swords that come out of his fists and everything. I, I love going to see superhero movies, and uh, Hugh Jackman is the guy who plays uh, Wolverine. Um, have you ever noticed that Hugh Jackman doesn't seem to age? The, the first X-Men movie came out in year 2000, which was 13 years ago, and he looks like, you know, he just filmed that yesterday. I, I don't know what his secret is. Uh, how do you give a 45-year-old guy, um, you know, the, the look of a guy in his early to mid-20s? Uh, Noel, now you know. You, you need to go to him for the Fountain of Youth. That's, he, he knows where it is, apparently. Um, he actually has a really interesting uh, and, and kind of tragic life story that most people don't, uh, don't know about, but he's just recently started kind of talking about it. When he was eight years old, uh, his mother left uh, the house, abandoned him and his four siblings and his father. And, uh, you know, when, when he finally realized that his mother was not going to come back, he was actually too scared to ever go into his house alone by himself, uh, like after school. In a 2013 interview, he said, I was terrified because the first uh, one home, I was the first one home every day. I used to walk home from school and just wait outside. I just couldn't go in. And his dad, uh, in, in response to being left by his wife and having to raise four kids on his own, he just filled his life with work uh, as a means of making ends meet, uh, working long hours as an accountant. And so Jackman uh, said this, he said, my father could only come to one school sports game a year because he had five kids. And on Saturday, he had to shop. If my father was there at at the sports game, it would be 50% greater. Having his approval is still something that drives me, end quote. And he admits, actually, this, this ongoing struggle that he has for approval, this deep-seated desire, this need that he feels to have the approval uh, of, of others, to have validation from others. He recently said in an interview, quote, I saw a play in Sydney, Australia, and in the notes, they had this quote from Bono that said, quote, what kind of a hole exists in the heart of a person when they need to have 70,000 people scream, I love you, in order to feel fulfilled? But there's a part of me that still wants to please. He recognizes. There's something wrong if you need the approval of 70,000 people every night. And yet, he still strives for it. He, he, he knows intellectually that it's wrong, but in his heart, that's still something that drives him. And you know, we're, we're created. I believe that we're created to need other people, to be around other people. And that's, by the way, why I'm so excited uh, for small groups to be starting up pretty soon. Um, because for me, it's not enough. It's not good enough to just say, okay, you know, see, everybody, you know, says to each other, see you next Sunday, you know, ha- have a great week. Um, we're created to be a community, to be a community. And, and the Bible even goes so far as to say that we belong to one another. I belong to you guys just as much as you guys belong to me. And you guys belong to each other. There's no kind of environment, in my opinion, that fosters interrelational and spiritual growth like small groups, in, in, my, in my opinion. But like Hugh Jackman, a lot of people, especially those who come from, uh, from broken homes or abusive homes maybe, they get overextended 
uh, they take it too far, this need for community, this need to belong and feel safe with a group of people. And so what happens is they end up developing this need to constantly feel approved of and to constantly feel validated by others. Now, it's somewhat normal, it's very normal for a child at a young age to feel uh, an emotional attachment to whoever stays home uh, with the baby, you know, whoever the caregiver is, whether it's mom or dad. And as the child learns to, to crawl and learns to walk and learns how to uh, explore the world around them, they'll use that, that caregiver figure, whoever that is, uh, kind of as a home base where, you know, they'll go out and explore and they'll come back to, uh, to that person because they feel safe with that person. But psychologists and sociologists believe that those who don't experience, uh, who don't fully experience secure attachment to a a consistent caregiver, they're actually more prone to develop a sensitivity to rejection in later relationships. Although anybody, anybody can find themselves falling into this trap in which they don't feel worthy. They don't feel loved. They don't feel accepted, respected, wanted, or validated. And so it throws them into an emotional tailspin when they don't feel that validation. And it's so easy to fall into this pattern of thinking, you know, if only, if only I had this person's love more fully, if only I could be like this guy or this girl, if only my parents valued and respected me, if only, fill in the blank, whatever it might be, if only then, you know, my life was somehow different, then it would make me feel better about myself. What a tragic thing, but yet we all experience it to a certain degree. The problem is that while uh, relationships do give our lives some sort of, of meaning and purpose, to, to an extent, there are certain things that relationships within a community cannot do for us. Henry Nguyen wrote this. He said, quote, We constantly feel tempted to want more from those around us than they can give. We relate to our neighbors with the hope and the supposition that they are able to fulfill most of our deepest needs. And then we find ourselves disillusioned, angry, and frustrated when they do not. End quote. See, at some level, this probably resonates with with all of us. Most of us, if not all of us. We know, at least intellectually, uh, that if we're expecting somebody else to make us feel good about ourselves or to fulfill our lives, or you know, maybe we expect that they would just always be with us, uh, we're asking for something that no human being can truly and fully give. And yet, so many of us can so easily fall into this pattern where we feel like you know, we're willing to jump through hoops, we're willing to bend over backwards in order to receive the approval, love, and validation of others. Now, if you've got your Bibles open to uh, Genesis chapter 29, uh, we'll start in verse 16, but I'm going to give you guys a, a quick summary uh, that leads us up to that point. Uh, you know, I believe that um, you know, the fact that, that we, we don't find fulfillment in other people fully uh, is one of the reasons that God almost always seemed to use social misfits as his prophets, as, as his mouthpiece. Time and time again throughout the Old Testament, we see that the prophets were, uh, were not normal. They were, they were kind of social, uh, social outcasts uh, who, who normally didn't care a whole lot about feeling validated by people. You see, people-pleasing can easily become an idol when we look to people or relationships to provide the love, the validation, and the acceptance that should come from God. And of course, as, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> as we've defined in this series, idolatry is looking to something or someone other than Jesus to receive 
something that only Jesus is fully capable of giving us. So the story of Jacob begins in chapter 25, uh, but I'm going to summarize. He grew up in this really dysfunctional home. I mean, this is, this is some wild stuff, and, and this is actually one of the reasons I, I actually trust the Bible, because if, if they wanted to portray a holy person who was at the foundation of, of a, you know, this nation of people that God was going to bless, they wouldn't have him come from this dysfunctional house that Jacob comes from. Um, he was born to Isaac and Rebekah, and you know, Isaac was Abraham's son, so Jacob was his grandson. And he was the younger of, uh, of twin brothers. Esau was his older brother. And somewhere along the line, maybe it was right away, maybe it was you know, further into life, uh, Esau became Isaac's favorite son. Maybe it was because Esau was the older of the two. Maybe it was because he was more of a manly man. You know, he was a hunter, uh, whereas Jacob is described as a tent dweller. Yeah, that, that's something of a contrast. You know, you've got the hunter who goes out and gets food, and you've got the boy who likes to just stay home. Uh, you know, it, it's not a nice thing to say about him necessarily, uh, but it's, it's probably a little bit of both. You know, he was the older son, Esau was the older son, and he was the hunter, so, uh, so Isaac favored him. And in response to his father's rejection, Jacob also, became, he's not just a homebody, he was also a mama's boy. Uh, he developed this, this really, really unhealthy, really dysfunctional relationship with his mother, Rebecca. And uh, all of this rejection and all of this dysfunction what it ended up doing was creating this gaping hole in Jacob's life, this emptiness uh, in Jacob's life, this desire for parental uh, approval of a father. And it was a wound that would take decades, literally decades, to heal. Now, as the older of the twin boys, Esau stood to receive this great inheritance from his father, but he also stood to receive something that was apparently uh, just as important, just as highly valued, and that is the father's blessing. But one day, Rebecca and Jacob, uh, they they, they scheme. They they get together and they come up with this plan um, to trick Isaac, whose eyes are are kind of failing him uh, in his old age, and so they trick him into mistaken giving the blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. And it worked. Isaac gives Jacob the blessing that was rightfully Esau's. Now, if you're described as a, as a tent dweller, and you've made somebody who's described as a hunter mad enough to kill you, there's only one way to go. Only one thing that you can do, and that is hightail it out of town. And so that's what Jacob did. He ran away. And he ended up finding and living with Rebecca's brother, Laban. And, uh, and thus begins Jacob's yearning for the type of approval, love, and validation and belonging from people that he only should have sought from God. So we pick it up in verses 16 to 20 of Genesis chapter 29. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Now, maybe in our culture, we look at this as something of a deal. Maybe we don't. It probably varies from person to person. But what we need to understand is that Jacob at this point in his life, is a, de- is a deceiving, scheming swindler who has met his match in Laban. 
He doesn't realize it yet, but he's actually getting a dose of his own medicine here. Seven years is an incredibly long, uh, long time to work for a girl's hand in marriage, but Jacob agrees to it. By the way, Rebecca, or, um, Rachel was the first girl that he met after he left Rebecca's side. So here he is. He's attached himself emotionally to the first female he laid eyes on after leaving Rebecca's side. Uh, and, and commentators agree that this, the seven years that he agrees to work uh, is above and beyond anything that would have been considered culturally normal. That, that wasn't normal. It was, it was too, too big. Uh, the only message that Laban could have possibly been sending to Jacob by giving him seven years to earn his daughter's hand is that, no way, dude, I am not going to give you my daughter's hand in marriage. But if you're stupid enough to work for seven years for it, sure, you can have it, because who would be crazy enough, who would be out of their mind enough to work for seven years for a girl's hand in marriage? That's what Laban is thinking. Uh, and Leah... Here's Leah, you know, she's the older of the two sisters, and, uh, and the Bible tells us that her eyes were weak. Uh, so Jacob, it, it's, not that, um, it's not that he doesn't like girls who wear glasses. Uh, for those of you women who wear glasses, it doesn't make you, uh, you know, any less beautiful or anything like that. Uh, he, he doesn't reject her because her vision, as my daughter said this week, he didn't reject her because her vision was 18-20. You know, it's not that. Uh, so, so what does it mean that her eyes were weak? Let me, let me put it this way. The first time I looked into my wife's eyes, I saw fireworks. It was like, wah! You know, and I, I was overwhelmed just by looking into her eyes. Uh, so basically it means that, uh, that Rachel made his heart flutter. He saw fireworks as he looked into her eyes. But, and notice the contrast that the text puts in there, but uh, the Bible tells us that Rebecca was beautiful in form and appearance. In other words, Leah just didn't do anything for him. She, she may have been a little bit homely. You know, we, we don't know. Whatever reason, uh, it, was, it was Rachel who had his eye, who had his heart. Uh, this girl was beautiful. This girl had it going on. She was hot, beautiful in every way, shape, or form. And Jacob was so smitten with love for her that he agrees to work for this unfathomably long period of time, seven years. And so what we see is that seven years have actually passed But by the time we get to verse 20 here. Uh, what happened in those seven years? We have no idea. It's not important to Jacob, obviously. It's not important uh, to us. It's not important to the story. But Jacob apparently didn't even notice that seven years passed because of his great love for Rachel. And so when we get to verse 21, those seven years are up. And in verse 21, Genesis 29, we read this. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So even after seven years... Uh, Jacob's heart flutters at the thought of being with Rachel and consummating uh, his marriage to her. And in our culture, you know, it's, it's easy for us to think, oh, you know, that, that's so sweet. Because we see all these movies that are like ridiculous, uh, you know, wh- where people are willing to do all kinds of crazy things to get married, like get turned into a vampire uh, or things like that. And, you know, if they were, I was joking with Christina yesterday, if, if they were to turn this story into a modern day uh, movie, you know, they, I'm, I'm afraid that they'd turn them into all, you know, vampires who are at war with a clan of werewolves or something. But, you know, Time out for a second here, and forgive me if I sound like Dr. Phil. You know, I really don't have any interest in teaching pop psychology. But seriously, why would Jacob 
agree to work so long? Something that was not uh, culturally normal. Why would he agree to work so long for Rachel's hand in marriage? (laughs) It's because he's looking for a person to find his identity in. He's looking for a person to fulfill him, to validate him, and to complete him. And so he latched on emotionally to the first female he laid eyes on after he left his mother's side. He had never known or, or experienced his father's love or approval. And so there's this deep longing in him to find that type of fulfillment from somebody, from some male figure, uh, no matter what the cost might be. And he sees that maybe Laban will actually give him that kind of validation, that kind of love and approval. Maybe Laban can fill that role that's been missing in his life since childhood. He'd been separated from the dysfunctional relationship he'd had with his mother. He was looking for somebody to take her place. He felt displaced and hated by everyone, uh, including his brother. And, And he had no idea what it would be like to feel the love of a father. And so he had no idea what it might look like, what it might feel like, to know the love of God, to know that God loved him. And so he's alone, he's isolated, he's abandoned, and so he's pinned all of his life's hopes, dreams, aspirations on one person, Rachel. Rachel is, in Jacob's mind, the greatest hope that he has. He's looking for someone other than God to give him what only God is truly able to give a person. He's an idolater. But everything is about to come crashing down. If you know this story, uh, we we know this is crazy. If you think this is a crazy story so far, buckle your seatbelts because this gets even crazier. Uh, We continue in verses 22 and 23 and then the first part of verse 25. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. And in the morning, behold... It was Leah. Like I said, as far as deceiving and lying and scheming and swindling goes, man, Jacob has met his match. Uh, what a what a horrible what a horrible uh, thing to discover in the morning. His uncle, who had agreed to give Rachel's hand in marriage, replaces Rachel with her older, less attractive sister Leah. And, and who could who could blame Jacob for being mad? For, for feeling outraged at being cheated like this. But he doesn't learn his lesson. He doesn't even learn his lesson. Instead, uh, he, come, uh, he ends up committing another seven years to working for Rachel's hand in marriage. That's a total of 14 years working for his uncle before he finally gets Rachel's hand. And, and this is as strange as anything that you would see back in the day on the Jerry Springer show. Uh, man, these guys, you know, this, this would have been the weirdest show ever. Uh, but, but there's some really important lessons here for us to grasp. What we see here is that Jacob's life, while he's seeking approval of people, validation from people, his life is plagued with one disappointment after another. Why? Because he puts his hopes and his dreams on a, in a human being who was incapable of fulfilling the expectations that he had. And so we see that the fruit of idolizing the approval and the validation of others is a bitter, bitter fruit. 
Laban doesn't just represent the, the, the meanest or most depraved of people. Uh, he represents people in general who are fickle and whose desires, whose decisions, uh, whose commitments can change on a whim. Just for any reason whatsoever, they can change their mind. One commentator had this to say about this passage. He said, quote, This is a miniature of our disillusionment experienced from Eden onwards. In other words with no disrespect intended toward Leah, when we put our ultimate hopes and desires in something or someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ, in the morning, it will always be like waking up to Leah, proverbially speaking. Never Rachel. And I'm convinced that almost everyone creates an idol out of the validation and the approval of others to some extent or another, to varying degrees. It's so easy to fall into this trap because we're made for a community and it's so easy to fall into this trap where you know, we want to be like those around us and so we want to fulfill the expectations of the people who are around us. And Sunday church service is no exception. It's so easy to come in here and just play a role. Like nothing's wrong in life. Everything's great. And you know that's one of the primary symptoms that people who, who struggle with this God of validation or people-pleasing will show. Church per, uh, becomes like a performance if you're not really careful. It can become like a show if we're not really cautious uh, to guard against it. You know, whether you're, you're leading the service or whether you are just coming and, and attending uh, week in and week out. And, and, you know, that's one of the reasons that, you know, last week I wore a, a nice shirt and a tie and everything. I, I just like to throw you guys for a loop sometimes. But that's one of the reasons I'll dress, uh, you know, just in this, the same stuff that I wear, um, you know, Monday through Saturday is because it's kind of my way. I, 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 I want to guard myself against falling into this trap of uh, you know, trying to fulfill a role that people are expecting me to fill. And so I just come as I am. This is, this is who I am every day of the week. This is who I am on Sunday. Every now and then, like I said, I'll, I'll, I'll try to throw you guys for a loop. Um, but it's part of how I avoid falling into uh, the trap of turning this into a performance, into a, into a show uh, in which I hope, above all other things, that I can just gain your approval. That's something that, that I really struggle with, is the desire to please you guys. I, I'm just being honest with you. That is something that I could very easily turn into an idol, and so I have to guard myself against it. Uh, now, there, there is a balance here, because we also, um, you know, while we need to avoid turning the approval and the validation of others into a God, we also don't want to offend uh, other people. Uh, the only time I really don't care if I offend somebody else is if somebody else considers my faithfulness to Jesus, um, you know, above and beyond everything else in my life, to be offensive. I, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. If you're offended that, that I love Jesus as much as I do, that's cool, you know, whatever. I'm not going to change, though. Uh, and Paul had the same attitude, and that's why in writing to the church in Galatia to correct their doctrine, uh, you know, they, they had received some teaching of false doctrine after Paul left, and they were apparently just ready to, t- uh, to take it hook, line, and sinker, he said this to them. He said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10b, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If I were still trying to please man, that word is anthropos in Greek, which means people. If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Why? Because you would be a slave to the people. See, falling into, this, uh, into the pattern of people-pleasing will prevent us from being a true servant of Jesus because what we end up doing is enslaving ourselves to the opinions 
and the desires and the preferences and the traditions of people. But Jesus said, follow me. He didn't say, follow the crowd. Jesus said, follow me. And you can't follow Jesus when you're a slave to the God of validation and people-pleasing. Because sometimes following Jesus means that we've got to take risks. Sometimes it means we've got to take a stand on an issue, and our stand isn't going to be popular. People might even hate us for taking the stand that we take. Sometimes following Jesus means going upstream when everybody else is headed downstream, and they just think, you're weird. What are you doing, dude? This is not how people are. This is, don't you see everybody's going this way? Why are you going that way? Sometimes that's what following Jesus is all about. And sometimes it makes people mad, to be honest. Sometimes it gets people really upset with us. And so you simply cannot do all these things if you value the validation and the approval of others at all costs. If you depend on people approving of and validating everything that you say and everything that you do, you will either end up saying and doing nothing at all, or you'll be chained to a lukewarm faith at best. In his book, The Search for Significance, Robert McGee wrote this. He said, quote, Living according to the false belief, I must be approved by certain others to feel good about myself, causes us to fear rejection, conforming virtually all of our attitudes and actions to the expectations of others, end quote. And yet, while this can cause you to be conformed to the expectations of others, Scripture tells us not to be conformed to the ways of the world, but to be transformed, to be transformed and to grow in Christ's likeness. The fact is, you cannot become like Jesus if you are conforming to the expectations that people have for you. You cannot become like Jesus if you're becoming like what people expect you to be. Solomon said this in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. He said, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now getting back to Jacob here, Jacob is not in a safe place down the road. He finds himself not in the same place and he realizes it because he spent his life, you know, he, he finally gets Rachel's hand in marriage uh, after 14 years and, and uh, you know, he, he finds himself not in a safe place because he spent his life looking to man rather than to the Lord for his identity. And so what we see is 20 years later, 20 years after he made this initial deal where he moved in with Laban and uh, agreed to work seven years and then agreed to work another seven years and then he worked six years tending the flock, uh, tending Laban's uh, sheep. Uh, after years of living in all this dysfunction and learning the downfalls of, of turning the validation and the approval of others into a God, Jacob flees from Laban's home with his wives, with Leah and Rachel and with their servants. And he finds out that he's actually about to meet up with Esau. As, he, as he's leaving Laban, he's about to meet up with Esau, who of course had vowed to murder him 20 years earlier. And so here's Jacob He's alone in the desert. He's facing what he is certain will be the end of his days. And he has nothing left in the world to put his hope in. There is nothing in his mind that is going to possibly save him. He can't control his fate. He can't manipulate his fate. This is just what, uh, what is sealed. This is, the, this is his, his fate being sealed. His father-in-law is behind him. His brother is ahead of him. And Jacob's strength and his confidence are too far spent for him to put up any further struggle. And so he collapses on the banks of a river in exhaustion, which, by the way, 
The fact that he just collapses in exhaustion, I believe, is a picture of, of the result of people pleasing as well. It will exhaust you. Uh, so, and, and while he's passed out here, you know, sleeping on the banks of this river, he gets a visit from the pre-incarnate Christ. And when I say the pre-incarnate Christ, I mean Jesus hasn't been born yet, but Jesus shows up on the scene. You know, Jesus gets born, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago from now, uh, and about 18, 1,800 years from this point, uh, but Jesus shows up on the scene. And what does Jacob do? He wrestles with him. I don't know how this happened. I don't, you know, we don't really know who instigated, but I kind of pictured Jesus just kind of showing up out of nowhere and jumping him from behind, just wrestling him, uh, you know, all night. That's what they did all night. So, so they're both doing it. They're, bo- they're both engaging. They're both uh, involved in this wrestling. Uh, by the way, how, how do we know that it was Jesus? Because Jacob uh, tells us that he saw the face of God. And we know uh, that when Moses wanted to see the face of God, uh, he said, no, nobody can see the face of God and live. Uh, and that was because you can't see the face of the Father and live. Uh, but Jacob saw his face, and they wrestled through the night until daybreak, at which point the Lord is ready to go home. He's ready to take off. And so he cripples Jacob with this blow to his hip that left him disabled with a limp for the rest of his life. But even after receiving this crippled hip, Jacob clings to Jesus. Jesus is ready to go, and Jacob won't let him go. He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Finally, he realizes that he can get God's validation. He realizes for the first time in his life, uh, he's, he's turning to God for the first time in his life. The blessing that he conned his father into giving him, what, what was the payoff of that? It was nothing. He had to hit the road uh, right after he conned his father out of it. The blessing that Laban should have given him was stolen from him time after time after time throughout this 20-year period. And now he tells God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob cannot take another instance of rejection. He cannot go on by himself without the Lord, and he knows it. What a wonderful place to be, by the way. And so he's willing to wrestle with God until he receives God's blessing. And do you know what it means for, for you or me to, to wrestle with the Lord or to, you know, spend the night wrestling with the Lord? You know, I, I'm going to confess to you guys that I've actually had a lot of nights like this, uh, especially in the past uh, few months, especially while I was on vacation. Um, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and, and I'd just have three or four hours of this, this restless, uh, frustrated prayer. Um, you know, I, I didn't try to go back to sleep. I didn't, I didn't want to rest. I wanted to wrestle. Uh, because I knew that when I came back here, we were going to be, be changing quite a few things. We were, in, we were on the verge of changing all these things. And I could not go on without the Lord's blessing. I could not go on by myself. I knew that I needed God's blessing to go on. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that situation where you know that you can't take another step without the Lord going with you? What a wonderful place to be. I will not go, I will not let you go unless you bless me. In the end, Jacob does what 
we all must do. He realizes what we all must realize. He confronts his failures. He confronts his weaknesses and the gods who have left him with nothing but empty promises. And he finally faces the one true living God. He wrestles with God. He wrestles with Jesus all night. It was an exhausting struggle that left him crippled, but it was only after he came to grips with God and stopped trying to do things his way, stopped resisting, stopped struggling with these gods that he had been serving all these years. It was finally then that he realized that he could not go on without the Lord with him, without the Lord's blessing on his life. The reality that we all have to come face to face with when we're tempted to become people pleasers is the total, all-encompassing sufficiency of Jesus. Jesus is the only one that we should be pinning our hopes and expectations and dreams on. He can satisfy like no other. He can fulfill like no other. He can give meaning, purpose, and identity like no other. He gives life like no other. Nobody can give you a life like Jesus can. Nobody. He gives life like nobody else. He is all sufficient. He is able to meet all of our needs. He said this to the Samaritan woman at the well, John 4.14. He said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What he's saying there is I can meet all of your needs. I can give you life. It's in me. And this was the woman that he's, he's, the woman that he's speaking to, by the way. She also had made an idol out of the approval of others as she sought validation, as she sought acceptance from one man after another, after another, jumping from one marriage to another, to another. And so she gave herself away again and again and again to one person after another, only to find rejection only to find disappointment, only to find that it didn't give her this, this, this fulfillment that she was so desperate for. And so what Jesus was telling the woman is the same thing that we must embrace. The reality that Jesus, and only Jesus, is more than enough for us. He's more, for enough, more than enough for us. His, his desires for us are not fickle. They're not changing. He, he desi- what he desires is always the same. He desires our devotion to him above all things as we commit ourselves completely to him and we find acceptance from God the Father, which isn't based on what we do, but on what Jesus did. It's all because, you know, it's all because of what Jesus did that we're accepted and validated by the Father because the best that we have to offer, the best that we have to offer is filthy rags. I don't even want to go to what the worst we have to offer is. We find validation and approval from God based on Christ's goodness. God's love and acceptance are where we find the only validation, the only approval that really matters. And when we surrender our lives, when we surrender our lives, just giving up the struggle to Jesus, when we surrender to the lordship that he rightfully has in our lives, we find approval, validation, love, and we find an identity. As I said a couple weeks ago, when we started this series out, my greatest fear as your pastor is that you would love something more 
than you love Jesus, that you would value something more than you value Jesus. And I see that far too many people profess, you know, they'll profess Christ, but they see him as, as just something that's added to their life, like he's just giving a new dimension to their life, kind of like getting an upgrade on a computer or, or a new bumper on your car or something like that. No, Jesus is not meant to be an addition to your life. Jesus is life. Jesus is meant to be your life. He alone must be our highest commitment. There can't be anything above him if we're going to serve and follow him. He's got to be our top commitment. He alone has to be our highest priority. He alone must have full possession of our hearts if we're going to follow him. And it's so easy to look at Jesus like he's just kind of the the straw on the cup. I needed an excuse to get a drink up here. It's so easy to see Jesus as just the, the straw. Like, okay, this is, this is how I get the life. No, Jesus is the straw. Jesus is the lid. Jesus is the cup. He's the drink. And he's, he's even the ice that's in there. Jesus is all. Jesus is enough for all of us. This is what it means to make Jesus the Lord of your life. It's to give your life and find your life entirely in him. Jesus must be more than just a part of our lives. He must be our life. And this is what it means for Jesus to be Lord of our lives. It is the ultimate tragedy when we try to unseat him and to replace him with some cheap substitute that we find more comfortable or more convenient, less costly than Jesus. That's why Jesus said, count the cost if you're going to follow me. Count the cost. He didn't say that because there's a low cost. He didn't say it because it's going to be easy. He said that because it was going to cost everything. He's basically saying, it's going to cost you everything you have if you're going to follow me. But you see, what we find when we commit to that, when we fully submit our lives to Christ's lordship and make him lord of every aspect of our lives, when he becomes our source of life, what we find is the same thing that Paul found. It is all rubbish. All the things that we surrender for him, for the sake of following him, it is all rubbish. It is all garbage. It pales in comparison to the glory and the beauty and the wonder of knowing Jesus and being known by him. And when we're known by Jesus, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. It's imputed to us. And when Jesus is our righteousness, our Heavenly Father approves, welcomes, and validates us. When we learn to live in a way that reflects the attitude that God's approval is the only approval that matters, that everything else pales in comparison, amazing things happen, We find ourselves freed from slavery to the approval of others, which is what it will become, what what very easily can can become. We find ourselves freed from slavery to the uh, approval of others. We therefore find ourselves free to serve and follow Jesus without any hesitation, without any apprehension, without anything getting in our way. And we find ourselves growing in personal holiness as we become more and more and more like Jesus. Remember what Jesus said. He said, you cannot serve two masters. It's me or it's somebody else, but you can't, I'm not, I'm not in contention with anybody else. I am Lord or I am nothing to you. You cannot serve two masters, so serve 
Jesus. Choose to serve Jesus and only Jesus. Paul said this, Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. He said, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In other words, represent him by serving him. Represent him well. You, you know, yeah, you're working for a paycheck, but that paycheck's going to get spent. What Jesus has to give you for serving him is better than a paycheck. The approval of people is not worth striving for above all else because it will ultimately enslave you. There are no guarantees with people, but there is a guarantee. There is a promise of inheritance in Christ Jesus. And there is only one ultimate hope upon which our lives must be built, and that is the hope of the gospel, that God loved us so much that he sent his son to bear our sin and to bear the wrath of God against our sin in order to redeem us. That is our greatest hope. That is our greatest hope and our greatest promise. There is no greater approval. There is no greater validation than a father who sends his son to die in our place. There is no greater or clearer way that God had of saying, you are more valuable to me than you could ever possibly realize. Transformation begins to happen in our lives when we stop making the approval, and the validation of anyone else other than Jesus, our God. We can't listen to those who will not and cannot give us the ultimate direction and validation before we listen to Jesus. He's the one. He's Lord of our lives. Jesus' approval is the only approval that matters. If you long for his approval, find it in him by submitting yourself further and more deeply to, the, to his lordship in your life. Find it in living by his word. Find it through ongoing repentance, every day repenting of what you're, what you're struggling against. Find it through loving him more deeply and following him more closely. Find it by looking to the cross. By looking to the cross and finding that you can have all that you need in the sufficiency of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we just come to you today and we're humbled by your love and by the fact that you would take us as we are, sinners, wretched, filthy people, and you make us clean. Lord, we thank you so much for the love that you did show us on Calvary by sending your Son to die in our place, to bear the wrath of sin, uh, when we, we, never could have, we never could have done it and been in your presence, Lord. We never could have uh, paid the, the, the sin debt that we had against you. And so we thank you above all, Lord, that you would call us to look to him, look to the Savior for approval. It's humbling, Lord. I pray that we would learn to look to you more consistently, more fully, for our approval, for our needs to be loved, uh, for, for the way that we act, for the way that we think, for the way that we uh, deal with others, Lord. May we seek you above all else. Of course, Lord, we pray for accountability within the community as well, that we would hold each other to the standards that you have set forth in your word. Convict us in the areas of our lives where we need to repent. 
and teach us to be more like you. Teach us to seek you above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.